Welcome, you're listening to the Agile Unemployment Podcast, where in each episode, we take an in-depth look at being out of work. We'll talk about the programs and benefits available to you. We'll talk about the job hunting process itself. And most importantly, we're going to address the psychological and emotional impact that being out of work has on the individual. I'm your host, Sabina Sulat. I'm an HR expert and author. A few years ago, I lost my dream job and found myself unemployed for the first time in my life. I was frustrated by the lack of resources and information available to people out of work. But more than that, I was just stunned by the fact that we don't talk about unemployment. I took my experience and I turned it into a book and I now coach people to build resilience while they're out of work. If you are out of work, if you recently lost your job, or maybe you've been unemployed for a while, or maybe you're just afraid that you might lose your current job, this is the place to be. We're a safe place where we can talk about all aspects of being out of work. We can answer your questions and we can help you build resilience so that when you go back to work, you are stronger and more confident than ever. So let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Sabina. Thank you for joining us for the Agile Unemployment Podcast. And yes, I say this every time, I am extremely excited for today's episode. For me, half of the fun of this podcast, half of the purpose is that I get to have great guests who I already know, because as I keep telling you, building that network, getting to know people in your field, people who can mentor you, people who will help you, people who might even become your friends is really important. And today's guest fits all of those categories for me. I am beyond delighted to uh, welcome to the podcast, five-time author, former head of R&D at a leadership development firm, my mentor, my friend, my inspiration, Jocelyn Davis. Jocelyn. Thank you, Sabina. Hi. Quite a good introduction, quite a lengthy one. It feels like I've known you forever, but honestly, you and I have not known each other that long, have we? No, I think we met maybe three, four years ago. Yeah. But it feels like I've known you forever and in a good way, a very good way. I hope it's the same. Well, well, we go, we go way back, right? Because we have a similar, yeah, just a similar background in all sorts of ways. Well, and I think that's when you know you've networked with the right person or you've connected with the right person. Sometimes you automatically click. I feel like we did that. And then you peel the onion and you start to realize all these other things you have in common. And with you, one of the first things I always thought is, how did I not know her sooner? And I'm I'm getting ahead of myself because I do want to talk about how we met because I think it's a great networking story. When I was out of work, I joined an HR book club and we would read a book every month. And we had this really wonderful book that I was really getting into. And I thought, wow, this is this is fascinating. And the book is The Art of Quiet Influence. And it had these wonderful Eastern tales that would be juxtaposed onto modern day work stories. And 
it, the concept fascinated me. I learned a lot. And then I look at the last page and it talks about the author because I want to know who this person is. And I connected with you on LinkedIn. You were gracious and you said hello and that was it. Then I started being more active on other social media as my book was coming out and you reached out to me. Do you remember that? I do. Why did you reach out to me? (laughs) Well, I think that you were asking for advice on your book cover. Were you not? Yeah. Uh, Multiple poems of my book cover, folks. Yes, multiple poems of your book cover. And I love to comment and offer advice on people's, first their book titles and also their book covers. I didn't recognize your name. I'm sorry to say, although I know you had sent me this lovely note on LinkedIn talking about the art of quiet influence and how you were such a fan. And I wrote back and said, oh, how nice. Thank you so much. And then forgot. And then here, but here was this person on Facebook, I guess, or, or maybe LinkedIn asking for advice on a book cover. So I weighed in and then you, you came back and said, oh yes, hi, I'm, do you remember me? And I was like, oh, well, no. (laughs) I I, I want to interject here. Like I'm the only person reaching out to you and obviously (laughs) not true. (laughs) But we went on from there and discovered that we were both St. John's alums and then you came to santa fe and we had lunch the rest is history it it quickly became history and we'll we'll get more to that a little later in the interview but what i appreciated was it's hard enough to network with somebody and reach out and it can be intimidating especially if someone has done something you yourself are thinking of doing you're brand new to and You're being a little modest when you're telling this story because it wasn't just you weighing in on book covers. And just so everyone listening gets an idea of how I work, the book cover on my book is probably one of the first ones that the cover artist gave me. And I had to be picky and go back and forth and ask the world to vote on it. And it was fun. But then you came back and you offered to write a blurb for me on the book, which For those of you contemplating writing a book, like that's it in the author world. I have realized when someone offers to write you a blurb, someone who is published and so forth. I was so touched by that and so appreciative. And that's when I was like, okay, well, I'm coming to Santa Fe. Maybe we could get together and my fingers are crossed and you were so gracious. And now we're here. I mentioned that Jocelyn is the author of five books. And she does write, we write in the same area about work. I only have one book so far. And I think we had the career thing in common because we both come from that learning world, the college, writing books. It just makes sense that we know each other now. And I, I do feel we've crossed over into friend territory. But you have a new book out. Tell us about I the do. new book. <laughs> Yes. The new book is that came out in March is called Insubordinate. The subtitle is 12 New Archetypes for Women Who Lead. And the point of the book is to help women in particular, everybody, but in particular women, to see that not only that we can be ourselves at work and lean in, if you will, to not just lean in in 
in general, but lean into our unique strengths that sometimes people may see as negatives. Uh, we get, all get called bossy or too soft-spoken or too this or too that or not enough this, not enough that. In my book, I want to help women see that you're not too much this or too much that. You are who you are and you can make that work for you. So that's one, one message of the book. But the other message is that we have a wider range than we give ourselves credit for. So I talk about these 12 archetypes, which are concepts or images that have been used as negative labels for women for centuries. Things like the witch, the Amazon, the empress, the snow queen, the temptress, all these labels that have been used for women in a negative way. And I talk about how we can reclaim them to, to our benefit and how we can, as I said earlier, how we can sort of embrace our most comfortable archetype. For me, it's the Snow Queen, for example. How can I embrace that, that the Snow Queen in me and have it work for me as a leader? But also, how can I recognize all the, the other archetypes that are potentially there for me and that I'm able to embrace and work with? Because as I say in the book, we as women, we contain multitudes. We can be more than we think. The message of insubordinate is that we can we can be ourselves, that can work for us as leaders in any arena, any capacity, but we can also expand our range and appreciate the archetypes that we see in other women as well, because that's another sort of sad fact about women, I think, is that we tend to be very harsh on ourselves and on other women. One of the things I try to do with this book is to help people appreciate the differences in that we see in our colleagues, especially our, our female colleagues. And instead of saying, she's so, she's so bossy, oh, what a bitch, you know, to, to say, oh, I can see she's being the empress, or she's being the Amazon, or she's being the, the empath. Um, not maybe not like me, but a valid leadership style, if you will. That's insubordinate. I love this. I love the idea. I love the concept. I had fun with it. I recommend the book to anybody who's interested. There's so much to unpack in what you just said. There are a few things that came across to me. And I think this is important for somebody who's struggling in a job, who's unemployed, to look at yourself and how you best work because your strengths are your strengths. It's who you are. I think authenticity in the job search is paramount. Otherwise, you're not going to be happy where you land. It won't be a good fit. What I like about your book is there's a self-awareness component very subtly in there of you can't take it to an extreme you can be the snow queen, but not in every situation. Sometimes, and we've talked about this, you maybe have to reach across to your the complete opposite of you, which everybody has everything. It's right. just your go-to. And sometimes that's not the day to be the snow queen. It's the day to maybe be the Amazon or something like that. Yep. And I think that's really important in the job search but one thing I wanted to talk about real quick, this is 
by a woman for women, but not for women only. Can you talk a little bit about that so we don't alienate anybody who maybe identifies differently in the audience? Yes, certainly. What I like to say when I am leading workshops or talking about this book right up front, because often there are men, people of other genders in the audience. And I like to say, look, this is not about what you identify as. It's about who you can identify with. If you can identify with women and with these archetypes that have been assigned to women for millennia, then this book is for you. This workshop is for you. And when I say that, I find that the guys in the room, always they relax a little bit because they get it. They get that there have been, that the models for leadership, especially, and for career mm-hmm. success for so many years, so many centuries have been men, right? They've been male archetypes. It's always, you know, the warrior and it's the guy in the suit and it's the, whatever they are, it's they're, they're, the leadership image has been male. So what I'm trying to do with this book and these talks is to reintroduce this idea of the female archetype as something that we can all look to, to expand our idea of what it means to lead. If you look at Carl Jung, the psychologist, where all the idea of archetypes came from, he he talks about how we all have the masculine and the feminine within us, the great masculine, the great feminine. It doesn't matter what sex you are, what gender you are, whatever, you have access to all of these archetypes. And if you can identify with these, these archetypes that I talk about, then you too can perhaps discover more of your strengths uh, and expand your range and, and really benefit. I'm thinking back in our nine to five careers. You and I have probably led countless workshops where we were teaching leadership development and a common activity I've seen used and I've used it myself is where you put leadership quotes and you ask, which one do you identify with the most? And as you were talking, I realized, wow, every one of those was from a male leader. And I never once had to apologize or felt I did, which is probably wrong on my part, to the women in the room by saying, you might not relate to this because you're not that gender. We never feel like with women, we have to put that caveat in, yet with men, we do. And I think you're breaking that stereotype with this. I've been in a workshop with you where there was a male member and he had a blast with it from what I remember. So I appreciate that. Yes. What is your hope with this book? how people read it, how they perceive it? What would you like people to walk away with? What message? The quote on the cover comes from from a friend of mine. She's on the board of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Joseph Campbell being the hero's journey and all Mm -hmm. of that. And I'd like to say that this book is about the heroine's journey, sort of reintroducing that idea of not a hero's journey, but a heroine's journey and talking about how they're different. And the quote that my friend gave for the cover. This book inspires us to be our best and bravest self. And that's really what I would like people to take away from it is to is to feel inspired to be your best self and your bravest self, which, as you said, 
a minute ago, Sabina, it, it's about embracing your go-to way of being and acknowledging that this is valid for you and is leaderly for you, but also being brave in being able to reach out and branch out a little bit and say, I can do these other things too, which I think in the, in the job search to bring it back to your wheelhouse in job searches, I think it's, it is important to be authentic and to sort of know what you want and where you shine. And it's also important thinking back to my own, the job that I got that set me off on my whole career path. It was a job that I did not think I was qualified for. So it was a quite an entry level job. I don't know why I didn't think I was qualified for it, but it was a, it was an editor job. But the way it was described in the uh, newspaper, which is where we looked for jobs back then, it just sounded like not quite like me. But so I actually tossed the paper in the trash. But then my husband dug it out and said, and he had been like looking through. I mean, he said, what about this job? Why don't you apply for this production editor? That sounds just like you. And I was like, no, 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 I don't think I'd be qualified. He was like, don't be ridiculous. Of course you're qualified. Why wouldn't you be? So I thought, okay, well, fine. And I, <laughs> and I applied and then, and, and I got the job, but it was an example of me taking somebody else's word for it, that yes, I could do this. It was not outside of my capabilities. It was potentially me to do that thing. And I think that this, <laughs> this book, Insubordinate, is when I say insubordinate, I don't just mean being the rebel, although that's fine, but it's being not allowing yourself to be sort of subordinate to your, no, no, your preconceived notions or others' preconceived notions about who you are and what you can do and what you can be. Like, don't, don't let yourself be, be subordinate to that. You can, you can rise above, you can be your best and bravest self. Uh, I love that. And my takeaway from the workshop that I was in for this book, what I liked was there were people from all of the different archetypes and they were talking about doing things that I wanted to do. And I looked at what they did for a living and their success rate, it gave me a really great perspective of there's nothing wrong with my go-to, but I have this ability to tap into another type to do the things I want to do. And if you're not, I wasn't getting what I wanted. And my thought was, but they are getting what I want. Maybe I have to follow some of those traits. <laughs> and it's something that now I stop and I think about, and I really do say things like, okay, so which one do I want? It's almost like I wish Remember that kid's game where you would like pull the cord and I don't know, a flower or a bee or something would spin around and it would stop on a different sound or noise or something like that. Sometimes I feel like yes. I want that for this book, like the spinning <laughs> wheel. And like, I'm going to do this today. I'm going to focus on my Amazon traits, my rebel traits or something like that, rather than my go-tos. Mm -hmm. That might be a good side thing for this, but <laughs> I want to get back to, first of all, the title which I love, and it might throw some people off because it's not a positive word in a lot of people's minds, but I think it is in this case. But I want to take it back to the first book of yours that I read and The Art of Quiet Influence. What I loved about that book was I related so much to the modern day stories and 
you made me think of leadership in a very different way. Usually we see leadership as this full force of exuberance and take no prisoners and so forth. I love the idea because I really am an introvert. No one believes me, but that quiet influence. And there's two stories in your book, and I'm going to tell the one that really intrigued me. And I know I'll get some details wrong because it reflected my leadership style. Then I would like you to talk about that last, how you left your company and I'll raise suspense. But to me, this is an example of a lot of your work. You make people rethink preconceived models and paradigms. And I love that because we need to do that. We're not, leadership is not one size fits all. And that's what really made me gravitate towards your work. And I'm so glad you walked the walk. But the story that grabbed me in the first book of yours that I read, you were talking about, you were taking something home from the office. It was these big, what what was it? I know I'm going to get it wrong. I, yeah. Yeah, you were like, yeah, I will. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story. Yeah, I you tell it better. You were gonna, I had a feeling you were going to ask me about this one. This is my favorite. Yes, I was. I, I had gotten this job that I mentioned before that my husband had said, "Yeah, you should apply." So I got the job. It was uh, an editor, be, being a basically a copy editor uh, slash production editor for this uh, leadership and sales training company called Forum, the Forum Corporation. Um, it, which is now no more, got absorbed into um, some larger thing. But uh, this was back in uh, 1989, and I had this uh, entry-level job as an editor, um, production editor. And one of the things that we created as part of the, the job were these things called flip charts, which were the main media. It was the multimedia for that era were flip charts, which were the big pages that you had on the easel on the our our facilitators in these workshops would use the flip charts and flip them over and to to run the class that whether it was leadership or sales training or management training whatever the flip charts were sort of a centerpiece of the materials and the way that we created the flip charts was on these giant plastic or acetate uh sheets three by four feet and they were called mylars because they were made out of this mylar plasticky material they were translucent, and we would have a calligrapher literally write the exercise instructions or the whatever it was, the key points, whatever needed to go on the flip charts. The calligrapher would handwrite on these giant mylars whatever she needed to write. They would then come back to us editors. We would proofread them, and then we would send them off to the printer, and the printer would print off of these mylars, would print the, the flip charts, the paper flip charts. And this whole process took like two weeks and it was it was a very artisanal thing. Nowadays, all re completely replaced by PowerPoint slides, of course. These mylars would come in these in these great logs. They would be rolled up, these big plastic logs of, of mylars. So one day, my manager, this was like a, a weekend to, to the job. And I was I was not enjoying myself. I was thinking I'm not in the right place. I'm this is a this is a terrible job. I need to leave. I already had like resumes out to other places. Didn't think it was for me. And my manager, whose name was Mona, showed up at my cubicle and she had this big log of these mylar flip charts in a roll. And she said, "Okay, Jocelyn." And it was it was like four thirty 
in the afternoon. I was sort of thinking about going home. I was in the middle of something else. Uh, she said, hey, Jocelyn, we really need to, I need to get these, these uh, flip charts proofed. And I'm not good at pivoting. I, and I was doing something else. And I was like, I, I can't. I'm doing these handouts. I have, to, I have to finish editing them. And so I can't. And, and she was my manager. And so she would have been completely within her rights to say, no, do it. But she just stood there and she said, well, I think I'd, I'd said, can I do it tomorrow? She said, well, it's urgent. Like we need to get these off to the printer like first thing tomorrow. So we need to do it, do it fast. And so I then suddenly had this sort of brainwave and I said, well, I have to leave at five, but could I take them home? and proof them at home and then bring them back in the morning. And she said, oh yeah, sure, that'd be fine. She <clears throat> plunked the big log, this huge log of plastic mylars down on my desk. And she said, <clears throat> okay, well, see you tomorrow. And then she walked off and then she turned back and said, just one thing, be really careful when you take them home because and in my mind in that split second after the because I thought oh yeah I know what she's going to say she's going to say be very careful with these mylars because they are very expensive and you don't want to damage them if you're going to take them home you got to be careful I thought she was going to say that but she didn't she said because the edges are very sharp and you might cut yourself. And that little moment, that one statement, because they're sharp, the edges are sharp and you might cut yourself, turned my whole view of that job around because I had totally expected her to be concerned with the expense of these, these flip charts and not wanting me to damage them. And instead, she was concerned about me not hurting myself. So I suddenly got this whole different idea of this company, of, of, of my manager, of my job. And it, it, it sounds silly, but but it really, it changed my whole view of, of what I was doing and what this my life was gonna be like at that place. And I decided in that moment, oh, I really need to stay here because this is a place where my manager cares about me and people think about these things. People think about whether their employees are gonna be hurt by cutting their fingers on the mylars. So, and the rest was history. I stayed at the company for 23 years. And you're right, I love that story. I remember reading it and I was right there with you. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, stop micromanaging. And then you, you read in the book, like it was really this care about you as a person. And I have that exact same feeling, and I'm not even a part of this. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so wonderful. I love Mona. We need more Monas. And it's yeah. this proof of people leave bad managers. They stay with the good managers. And I hope any leader or manager listening to this, tap into your inner Mona and make sure that you are taking care of your team, your staff, your group as people. It's, it was such a human moment and I loved it. Yes. And a lot of managers and leaders think that, oh, I don't have time for this. And as, as a leadership development person, if I had a dollar for any time 
someone came to me and said, oh, I'm a glorified babysitter. And, and I think you are in the wrong job. And it, mm -hmm. it doesn't, you don't need like a PhD in this. You need a heart and you need to make comments like that. Even I'm going to be blunt, even if Mona really didn't like you or care, it was just showing it. And yep. that's the important thing. Yep. I love that story. But now let's go to my second favorite story in the book, which is <laughs> your kind of ending story. And we definitely see you experiencing a different kind of leadership. And I think the second story ties, in my mind, ties directly into the title of your new book, Insubordinate, because that word was thrown about towards you, if I recall correctly. So spoiler alert, this is how Jocelyn left that job or that company years later. Back to you. Yes. Yes. Flash forward 23 and a half years. The company had been sold, uh, I think it was in, in 2000. We had a wonderful founder. His name is John Humphrey, who founded the company. He finally sold it to a much larger firm. And from there, it was really the, the standard stories. This had been a, a very small consulting firm, got absorbed into a series of much larger firms. There were, I don't know, four or five sales, I think, to different entities. And finally, in 12, we were sold again. We had a series of different CEOs, presidents who were, who were brought in. And the whole culture just completely shifted. We were, the companies that were our owners were publicly held. The name of the game became the bottom line, the numbers. That was, that was it. And it just did not work very well for anybody. It didn't work for, for us. By that time I was, I had risen to become the EVP of R&D, of research and development. And I was on the executive team at, at the company, but the had many, had layers of corporate bosses above us. And it just, the, the new regimes did not fit with us. We did not fit with them. But I wish I'd had the book Insubordinate before <laughs> this had happened. I wish somebody else had written it because it would have warned me, among other things, to, how shall I say, that that when you're when you're in that sort of situation as an executive at a company where the whole regime has changed, you are really not in a position to influence anything quiet influence, loud influence, any type of influence, because you're, you're a target for, for cost cutting, you're a target for envy, you're a target for be, being uh, made an example of, you're a target. And it's very hard to navigate that kind of uh, situation if you have been part of the company and that company culture for decades. And then this new regime comes in and wants to shake things up. You are a target. I did not handle it particularly well because I, I, I did not, my, my inner snow queen really got her back up and became very, how shall I say, I, I was outspoken, but in a very disdainful way. I made it very clear that I, that I did not like my new bosses and was not having any of their nonsense. And I had a very good reputation, solid reputation at the company. People people looked up to me, people liked me. I had a lot of influence, 
but I did not recognize the difference between having that kind of influence with the, the people that I had grown up with, so to speak, and not having any real influence with the with the new regime. So I ended up, I, I call it now that I, I resired because I resigned, but then they told me that I was going to be fired anyway. It was a very bizarre <laughs> conversation where, because speaking as now in hindsight, it's like, this is, you don't do that. If somebody offers to resign and you want them out, you just say, thank you very much. Thank you for your service and, and goodbye. We wish you well, but they didn't. I got on the phone after having sent in my resignation letter and I tried to be very gracious and, and I, I was gracious. I said, I'm happy to stay for you know a month or however long you need to help make the transition and all the best and whatever. But I got on the phone with them with, uh, and there was the the lawyer and my two bosses, two levels of bosses. And the lawyer slash HR person said, well, thank you for your resignation letter, but you should know this was going to be a termination call. And I just want you to know that we have the documentation here of, of clear insubordination. And that's why you're being fired for being insubordinate. Even at that moment, first of all, I thought how, how odd that they <laughs> They would make a point of this. But secondly, I thought, wow, I have been accused of being insubordinate. That is, that's awful, but it's also pretty great. And I'm, there was a little piece of me in, in amidst my shock that was like, I need to, I need to say something about this someday. I didn't, I didn't really have a plan to write a book exactly, but, but I just thought I need to like I need to reflect on this concept of insubordinate and and just and make something out of it. So that was really the spark for this what eventually 10 years later became this book Insubordinate. When I read about that incident to me there's so many things to first of all there's so many things to look at in your situation that I think a lot of people listening have experienced even if they're not at that EVP level. It's that a new culture comes in that isn't aligned to you. It's very uncomfortable. It's very difficult. We think that we are being good employees by speaking up. I worked for a company where one of their values was speak up. They said, we have a speak up culture. And then when mm. you would do that, you were told, yeah, stop talking. And I yeah. that actually happened to me at, at my job. I relate very well. This was after I'd read your book, but... Yeah. It's always, it, we had the same, it was all, yeah. but it was speak up, but not like that. Yeah. Speak up, but only in agreement with what we say. And yeah. it's very uncomfortable. Kudos to you for definitely being your own person and being strong enough to walk away. The absurdity of it, just, I, I remember reading the book laughing because it sounded like the world's worst breakup where you can't break up with me. I'm breaking up with you. And I'm like, really? How old are you? Not only that, the the HR professional in me is going back through the, you do know that if she resigns, she just walks away and takes her PTO and 401k and, and that's it. If you formally separate from her, we don't call it termination anymore for obvious reasons, but then you owe her severance and all of this other stuff. And you open yourself up to lawsuit. And I'm like, these guys are stupid. I, I know. <laughs> I know. Very stupid. Yes. Yes. But, and this and this is why I think they needed to say that say insubordinate 
yeah. because they weren't going to, they weren't giving me any severance anyway. A, a, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. a colleague of mine also got terminated on that same day and she did not resign. She was completely blindsided. It was, it was much more, that was much more upsetting to me than my situation yeah. actually, because she was just blindsided and got no severance. And they said it was for misconduct, I think. But but you're absolutely right. It's just very silly to terminate somebody or to make it clear that you are terminating somebody who is offering to go. And these are very misconduct and insubordination are very serious terms when you think of professional reputation and everything else. And I know that there are people listening to this who've been in that situation, who have maybe been told a lot of big SAT words, as they used to say, like malfeasance and things like that are thrown about. And I, I was there. That that happened to me. And it they're usually very subjective words mm-hmm. because it's not clearly you didn't do something like barge into a boardroom and scream at people. It was right. in your day-to-day action. And I, I love that you cannot raise your voice and be insubordinate and be rational and everything else. And God, there does seem to be now a little misogyny in that, in the word insubordinate. But I, we could talk about this all day. We might have to have another podcast conversation about just this issue. But let's talk about what happened afterwards, because your story is very different from what happens to a lot of people in that you, you ended up getting support from colleagues and boomeranged back into the company, didn't you, at some point in consulting or something? I did. I did. And I, I think the there was a lesson in this for, for me and for everyone, I think, that in that I I I I did I certainly burned bridges with the particular people who were in charge at that time, but I did not burn any bridges, in fact, quite the contrary, with with anybody else. So any of the people who were had been associated with the company for years, my colleagues, I maintained very close ties with them because I had not, in, in any of my supposed insubordination, I had not thrown anybody else under the bus. I had, in fact, I had protected my team. I had, which was one of the reasons why the the sort of the bad folks didn't like me because I was I was staunch in protecting my team and protecting my colleagues and standing up for my colleagues. And so when I left, the even though the whole company was instructed not to talk to me, because and that if they did talk to me, they would be getting pink slips themselves, which is ridiculous, of course. Nevertheless, half the company did reached out to me and said, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Let's chat. Do you need help? It, so it was a very... It was a horrible time, but also a wonderful time in a way, because I just got such an outpouring of support from my colleagues. And then two years later, that whole, this is a lesson for all of us, the the regimes don't last, right? Any regime is going to come to an end. And so a new, there was a new sale to another company, a new CEO came in, had no connection to any of the previous people. And I called him up the new CEO and, and just said, hey, I just wanted to say hi and wish you well. And as you may know, I was head of R&D and I know a lot about the the content and the products and everything. And if you need support, just I, I'd be happy to let you know. And, and he got back to me almost immediately. I'd sent him an email. He shot me back an email saying, 
thank you so much for reaching out, Jocelyn. I would love to talk to you and learn more about the company you built. Wow. <laughs> and and so I so we did chat and I got his I I laughed at the time because he said, Oh, well, you need to come back and be in our in our network, our resource network of contractors, because we had a big contractor network. He said, We need to come back in. And I said, oh, I said, that's great, Russ, but you're gonna need to write a note for me because <laughs> Permission to the, slip. To the, to, yeah, permission slip, literally, because the whole the company had been told not to talk to me. So I said, I know that my my friend, the resource uh, manager of the resource network, who would love to bring me back on, she's going to need a note from you. So he wrote me a note. Nice, nice. And I think there's a couple of takeaways from this, that that groundswell of support that you received from other employees. First of all, yeah, there's no there's no law that says we we can't talk to somebody who's left the company. There might be a policy, but what you do on your personal time is your personal time. When I lost my job, one thing that I found fascinating was people who I thought for sure would reach out to me didn't. Mm. And then I was surprised when support came from like the least likely sources. Yep. And that shocked, like I got handwritten notes and letters from people. I'm like, okay, we don't want an electronic trail. I get that. I had, I found out that I had been told that there had been an, an employee who had complained about me and that I was difficult to work with because I suggested alternative ideas. And I was later told that that person was so enraged and that was the word used that I had been, that I'd been separated from the organization that they went and talked to the head of HR on my behalf. And, and I will admit, this is a person who was not my best friend at the company, but I was pleasantly surprised and honored. And we do talk now and we've never talked about that specific incident, but very shocking. And you just never know. You never know. That's right. No, I was surprised too. Yes, I got, and I remember to this day, especially the folks in the sales force, because I was very surprised by, because the sales and delivery, as we call it, had a sort of contentious relationship Mm -hmm. sometimes. Shocking. And yeah. And, and I guess I had assumed that, that most of the sales folks would be very concerned with, with losing their jobs if they talked to me and we weren't friends really. And, mm-hmm. but there were a number of people in sales who I was surprised reached out to me directly, called me or, or emailed and just said, I'm so sorry. And, uh, and do, do you need to talk? Or it was, yeah, it was very gratifying. Yeah. And I think it's yeah, that I- thing about, respecting you Mm. even if they didn't know you they didn't go to coffee or lunch with you or anything like that they respected you your work ethic your professionalism clearly they loved the snow queen and (laughs) you probably worked well together in the end maybe that conflict that was happening ended up causing better situations because you heard the other person's point of view I think anyone listening who's either lost their job or maybe left an organization and no one's reaching out to you, that's not personal. That's probably them thinking 
They can't talk to you. They shouldn't talk to you. They don't know what to say. I hope your takeaway from this little snippet of our conversation is that you probably still have a lot of allies. Yes. And, and every now and then I have somebody come out of the woodwork. Somebody recommended me for a job. I, for me, I didn't go back to where I was, but I will admit to this. I was asked to be a part of an advisory group for the organization. Was it last year, 18 months ago? And I was extremely proud of that. And I did let a few people know, like updating my LinkedIn with that, I felt pretty cool. Like yeah. there. Thing. And you know, that makes me think of, of the biggest lesson from all of this, I think for, for all of us to, to be ready for the, the day when we too are looking for work is that I, I'm so glad that I, that through my whole time at that company, I, I prioritized my colleagues, that is my, my network mm-hmm. and not, and not the, not pleasing the boss. Um, and sometimes those were those two things, pleasing the boss and making good allies and uh, with, with my colleagues. Sometimes those were aligned happily. In fact, a lot of the time they, they were aligned, but when it got to the point where sort of the chips were down and I had to choose between, you know, sucking up to the, to, to management in order to keep my job or staying in, staying in good standing with the network, with, with my colleagues, I was absolutely right. And it paid off in the end to choose the latter. I was very fortunate in that I was in a financial position and a sort of professional position where I could leave and I had enough of a cushion to you know, sort of set myself up in a different space. Many people are not in that position. And so you have to, you know, you cannot be insubordinate as I was. But nevertheless, I think if there, there are often cases where we have to choose between throwing our colleagues under the bus so that the so that our manager will like us or standing up and saying no and being, you know, quote, insubordinate to to management for the sake of your reputation, your integrity, your allies. And it will, I I would venture to say, will always pay off in the end to to choose the latter. I think you have to decide who you want to be and be that. And I would say, bringing this back around, I think you were tapping into your, like Mona taught you well. You treat mm-hmm. people well with dignity and respect. It might not always be the response they want, but if you show that empathy and compassion to people and respect, that goes a long way. And clearly it did with you. But I think leaving a job at any level, even voluntarily, is difficult. How did you rebound after you left, especially a company where you were there for 23 years? Yeah, it was it was very difficult for well for for at least a year. It was very hard because my identity, as you can imagine, was mm-hmm. that company. My professional identity was all was forum, and so I had a long period where I was still trying to do what I had done there. In fact, some ways I'm still trying to to do what I did there, thinking about this tour that I know we'll talk about in a moment. But I tried to sort of recreate that 
that life on my own as an independent consultant. And it it sort of worked for a while, but I eventually discovered that I wasn't going to be able to recreate that same world on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I and but but happily, I also discovered that I was good at and enjoyed writing books. And I had written one book under the auspices of Forum before I left. So I had that sort of as a as a tiny platform. And then I went on to write a, another one, a book called The Great Song Leadership, and thought that that would support me in my um, independent consultant life. But then eventually, as I, as I say, I, I came to realize that I really didn't want to be an independent consultant. I wasn't particularly good at it. I didn't enjoy it, but I did enjoy being a writer and also and and speaking and delivering workshops and sort of do it, doing the stuff around the books. So I eventually was able to pivot to that, but I did have, I boomeranged back to forum for a while, as I say, had, had some of that work going to, to support my writing. So it was a, it was a sort of really transitional time where I was trying to, you know, put together different things in order to make money and be happy and and combine a lot of stuff. It, it was it was good, but I, it took it took me a good six months to a year to detach from that identity of I am a I'm a forumite I'm a this is who I am. I can definitely relate to that, and we talk about that a lot on the podcasts and posts about change is hard, and it's not this. The change itself is a line you step over. One day you're employed, the next day you're not. The transition through that change takes time and it takes work. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard part for people. But what I love is that you've done what so many people I've talked to who come on the podcast, you write to me, is using that unemployment period as a time of transition and reinvention. And look at where you are now. It seemed like this, it was a bad thing that happened to you, but it was a good thing that happened for you, as we like to say here. And there you have it. Uh, this is Sabina, and I just want to remind everyone, what you've just heard is just part one of my two-part conversation with author, leader, Jocelyn Davis. Look for the next episode to drop shortly, where we talk about the next venture on coincidentally, my and Jocelyn's agenda. We hope you'll be a part of it. And thank you so much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed. Don't forget to come back for the second part. And there you have it for today. I hope you learned something or heard something today that is helping you as you are in your out of work journey, and that will help you normalize the conversation about being out of work. If you heard something that resonated with you, Please show us support, subscribe, like, or comment on something. If you'd like to learn more information, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Sabina Sula. I'm the only one. You can also reach out to me on my website, reworkingworks.com. You can also email me at ssulat at reworking.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to know about private coaching, more about the book, more about the podcast. I wish you luck in your getting back to work journey. 
I hope that you've learned something here that if it hasn't made that journey a little shorter, it's at least made it a little easier. Until next time, thanks for joining.